Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Today's episode is focused on the mental health licensing exams. We understand that the licensing exam is only one aspect of the broader topic of behavioral and mental health, but for student practitioners, this is an important and final step before starting their careers. We believe that these discussions can be helpful for practitioners practicing for their exams and obtaining licensure, and thereby growing and enriching our industry. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and we'll be back next week with our newest guest covering a trending topic in behavioral and mental health. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Elmore, and with me today is Dr. Kristen Wilkinson. Dr. Wilkinson is located outside of Chicago, and she's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Barrington Center for Counseling and Psychotherapy. She's also an EPPP licensure prep coach with AATBS and Taylor Study Method. She also contributes as a writer for Stepmom Magazine and as an adjunct professor at Elmhurst College at Midwestern University. Kristen specializes in work with young adults, women, divorced, step families, and bariatric surgery candidates. She has extensive training in working with anxiety, depression, body image, perfectionism, grief and loss, adjustment, and relationship and family concerns. But today we're going to be focusing on Kristen's expertise as a licensing exam coach. We're going to be talking about early career experiences and how to prepare for the EPPP. And I may jump in there with my two cents, Kristen, since I'm also a licensing exam coach with Triad, but we're really happy to have you here today. So welcome. Thanks for having me, Erin. I'm excited for us to kind of tag team on this topic. Yeah, it'll be fun. So I figure we can start kind of at the beginning and work our way through the EPPP process and then end with what to do when you're done and just kind of go naturally in chronological order. So let's start first with understanding where someone is at when they're ready to take the EPPP. Do you want to speak to that? Absolutely. So I mean, typically kind of in a broad sense, most folks are finished with their doctoral program. So they've you know, completed a qualifying or comps exam. They've defended their dissertation successfully, completed an internship and have their doctorate degree. And most of the time, I would say, depending on your state, but most of the time folks are either on a postdoctoral fellowship, either kind of an official capacity or an official capacity, or they're completed with postdoc hours before their state will give them approval to take the EPPP. So it kind of depends based on your state or province, but for the most part, people are either on postdoc or completed their postdoc. Michigan is, is kind of a unique state where they do have a lot of their master's level clinicians who have to take the EPPP to get licensed. So that's a little bit different but for the most part. Folks got their degree and now they're just ready to take this fun exam. <laughs> well, fun is one word for it. <laughs> so it sounds like the EPPP usually happens towards the end of the graduate process or the end of the training process. So it sounds like people should really just check with their state board to see what's required. Because yeah, I, I concur that some states require that you have a certain number of hours before you test. Some want you to actually have your degree before you test. Others don't mind. So some people can test even as they're finishing up their training. Yeah. So it sounds like it's kind of state specific when you can take it. 
Yes, very state specific. And, and I'm always encouraging folks that even if you know you want to take it in a different state, certainly you can. So even if you want to, you know, take it in let's say Kansas, but you live in Illinois, you can certainly do that. I mean, you don't even have to necessarily step foot in the state of Kansas to do it. So you just have to really be sure that you're following their requirements and regulations um, when you're applying for the licensure process. And I would add to, sometimes I talk to people that are maybe a first or second year in graduate school and they're ready to start studying for the EPPP. And we actually would recommend against that because then you have to maintain all that knowledge while you're still focused on your practicum hours and your graduate classes. And so I know there's a lot of overachievers in our field, but I think checking with your (laughs) state board to figure out when's a realistic time for me to start studying for this and definitely don't worry about it until it's time for you because it's doable, but yeah, doing it too early can add stress to the process. It's really funny that you bring that up because I was reflecting on my own experience with the EPPP and I was thinking about, well, when did I first even hear about it? And I don't know, Erin, if you could speak to your experience when you heard about it, but I remember it was literally day one of graduate school. I mean, literally you're day one, you're super green, you're with your cohort who you're still getting to know, and you don't even know your professors yet. And I remember they were like, yeah, so you have to take all these classes, you know, you'll be here for about five years, maybe more. You have to take all these exams and then, you know, do a dissertation. Oh, by the way, there's this EPPP thing. You have to do that kind of at the end. And, you know, we're all like wide-eyed wait, what, what is this test, this massive test that we have to take in five years from now? And, you know, thinking back to some of the earliest classes you take in grad school, technically, yes, some of that is going to be on the EPPP. And I even remember there was a couple of my first classes I ever took and there'd be a reference of, hey, this will be on the EPPP. And looking back now, I'm like, well, that was in 2012. I took the exam in 2017 probably I'm not going to remember that exact moment in 2012. So yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. Don't freak out right now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I remember in class, whenever somebody would offhandedly say like, oh, this may show up on the EPPP, I would highlight it or star it. And I would save that one random page of notes for that one asterisk, but it wasn't even helpful because by the time I was ready to study, you need, you want to use a study prep program because there's so much more that's covered on the test than those random things during your class. So yes, just, just for the early listeners out there, you know, have, have no fear. There are resources for you. You don't have to worry about it during grad school, but that's so funny. We had the same experience. Yeah. Let's define what the EPPP really is. So can you give us some context and some definition of what is the EPPP? I love that question because even for listeners who aren't maybe you know, needing to take the EPPP, but maybe they have friends or colleagues or family members who are going to become psychologists someday, it's, it's helpful, you know, to be supportive and understanding, you know, what is this exam? Because a lot of the folks I work with, it's like, well, my family doesn't really get it. They don't really understand what this is all about. Sometimes they'll be like, yeah, it's the EPPP. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> technically like, is true. That's true. <laughs> technically um, in the field though, we do call it the EPPP. And so what is the EPPP? So for, for those who have to take it and those who maybe don't have to take it, but want to support someone they know who, who does have to, it's the examination for professional practice in psychology. And basically it's developed and owned by an organization called the Association of State and Provincial Psychology Boards, which we tend to call shorthand 
ASPPB. And so they develop it, they own it, they create four versions of the exam every calendar year. So January through December, every calendar year. And what they do is they basically create this exam to give us a, a standardized way in the US, US territories and Canada to really assess candidates so that they can show their core knowledge and ability to be able to independently practice in psychology. So when I'm talking to folks, I usually say, it's a way for you to prove to the public that you have the foundational knowledge that you need to practice psychology. So it's kind of like a proving to the public that, that they are safe with you. That's really what this is all about. That's a great explanation. And I love how you tie it in family support or partner support and understanding what the exam is. And sometimes when I coach people and I, and I hear their struggle trying to explain to their family, how time consuming and important it is. I like to think of it as our version of the bar exam. Now it's definitely yes. not as intense as the bar. Ours is only one day exam. There's is two. So in no way am I saying it's as difficult as the bar, but for our field, it is the top exam and it is pretty time consuming and very comprehensive. So that may be a way we can explain it to family members too. It's like, Hey, this is, this is our bar exam. And I really just need to study for this and make it a top priority for a few months. And, and then we can hang out again. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> yes. See you soon. <laughs> yeah. See you soon. Well, we sort of already hit on this, but when you think of the EPPP, either your experience in grad school, or as you coach people through the EPPP, what are some of the top emotions that rise to the surface with this exam? I mean, is there an all the above answer? <laughs> yes, <laughs> all the above, every emotion that's in the realm of emotions. This exam, I think, brings out a, a lot of emotions. I mean, I would even say, you know, out of fairness, there, there is some excitement in the sense that, you know, hey, you've gotten to this point in your career where you're getting the opportunity to, to take this exam and get your license. I mean, this is what you've been working towards for five, six, even more years. And so in some ways there is that little excitement that you got to this part of the process, but you know, it might take a little bit to get to the excitement emotion. I would say the majority of folks tend to be really, really anxious, really anxious. And a lot of the anxiety and stress comes from the fear of what if I don't pass? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? If I don't pass, what does that mean for my career? I think a lot of times in just what I've seen and even, you know, from my own experience, it's, there's a lot at stake to get your license. And, and this exam is kind of the gateway to getting your license. I mean, it's not the end all be all, but it is part of what you need to, to pass this and accrue your hours, pay the fee, you know, get the license. And so some people, they may find that their job is on the line, that unless they get licensed, they may not have a job or they're, you know, dealing with a lot of financial stress because once they get the license, they'll be kind of at a different earning level, but, but they won't be at that level until they get the license. They may be the primary um, earner in their family. And so, you know, the stakes are high. I would say majority of folks are stressed they're anxious. And there's sometimes a kind of a questioning of confidence. Like, can I really do this? I think it brings out kind of this, this sort of shaky feeling of, can I, can I really accomplish this? Can I really get over this hump? And I, I can imagine that a lot of those feelings are familiar feelings to like when we had to take 
our comprehensive exams or qualifying exam, depending on what program you're in. It's kind of that midway big test you have to take while you're in graduate school to kind of get to the last half of grad school or even the dissertation, right? Like that feeling of, can I really do this? So I think it brings out a lot of those fears and emotions that you experience throughout your grad program. And it's kind of resurfacing its, its ugly head again, so to speak. But I think the other part of why this feels stressful is because, and I talk with folks about this from day one, the commitment that this takes is that of a part-time job, truly. I mean, reframe your thinking because this is a part-time job. I mean, through Triad, we recommend if you're using ATABs, we say, hey, you know, if you want to study for six months, we want to see you studying about 10 to 15 hours a week. Or if you want to study in three months, that's about 15 to 20 hours a week. So I think in any definition of a part-time job, that's truly a part-time job. It's a lot of Absolutely. hours. Absolutely. And I would add too, I totally agree with everything you said. And I would add, I've sort of noticed over the years coaching and reflecting on my own experience, I think the timing in which the exam comes up can also lead to more emotion because I, I don't know about you, but I was never more burnt out in my life than finishing postdoc <laughs> and trying to study for this test. And so it's like at the end of all these hoops that you have to jump through the comp exams and all the classes and your hours and then your dissertation defense and your dissertation approval and all, you know, and so at that point, people don't really see that there really is an end after the EPPP and they're just exhausted. And so I think that lends itself to feeling more down on ourselves and feeling more stress as well. When I coach customers, it's also about managing burnout because it's absolutely committing to a part-time job, but you do want to get there successfully and not like barely breathing by the end of three months. And so sometimes it's a conversation of, okay, what if you took an extra month, but actually slept like a normal human or actually were able to cook meals or walk your dog, you know? So I think it's that balance of this has to become a part of your life for a few months, but it also should be part of your normal life. Not, not something that you just power through because at that point, everyone's so exhausted, you know? And I would add, as you were saying that it kind of brought up a thought to me about kind of traditionally, right. If you were to take the EPPP right after finishing graduate school, which transparently not everybody does. I mean, there's different things True. that come up. I would say that phase of life is a huge part of this. And I can speak to this as you know, I think I'm kind of teetering towards the end of early career psychologists, but I'll still love myself in there. That phase of life, right? That you've, for so many of us in grad school, especially if you go straight on from undergrad, you really have to sacrifice so much of your personal life to get yes. through the grind of grad school. And so, so many times, and even for myself personally, it's, it's so much gets put on hold. So that could mean getting married. If that's something that you're looking to do or having a family, having children that so much of that gets put on hold. And then I think for a lot of folks, it's like, okay, I'm on internship. Like, let's do this. Or, you know, I'm, I'm going to move across country to this like dream job and, and, you know, move my whole family. So much of that gets put on pause during graduate school. And I think a lot of people, it's like almost like you just can't put it on pause anymore. So all of that's happening. Oh, and here's this test that I have to take. You know, I, I would add too, not everybody does it right after graduate school that sometimes, you know, it's for the betterment of you and your success to take a break. Maybe, you know, mm -hmm. you want to, you know, stop for a little bit and, and grow your family and then revisit the exam, you know, in a couple of years or something like that. So I think letting listeners know too, that it's not necessarily about every single person takes the EPPP right out of graduate school. Cause that's certainly not true. Very I've even true. had yeah. folks 
where it was interesting, and I'm not sure how much you've seen this, Erin, but I've definitely seen this as a coach that sometimes I'll have folks where they've never needed a license, you know, just kind of given where their career has taken them in psychology, they've never needed it. But, you know, now they're kind of towards the end of their career, they're in their 70s, even 80s. And they're like, you know what, I just want to do this for me. I just want to, you know, prove to myself that I can get the license. Or, you know, some of the school psychologists, the laws are changing and now they have to get licensed. So very much so you could see people who've been in the field for 10, 20 years, and now they have to go back and take this exam. So, so many different life phases that come into play with this too. I'm really glad you mentioned that. It's true because we're, we're talking as if you're taking this test straight out of grad school, which I think most people would do, but absolutely it's not unusual at all to have somebody come back and take the test after two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, I would say 30 to 40% of my coaching customers are actually in that latter group. And they're always, always concerned. I understand they're always concerned about, am I at a disadvantage because it's been so long since grad school. And I don't see that to be true. I don't know if you do, but I, I think there's a little bit of a dusting off of your studying skills that has to be done in that case, but they got where they got for a reason. And they have study skills and they know how to sit down and study and they know how to sit down and listen to people. And so a lot of the same skills that they've been using clinically can help them in their routine to study for the exam. So yeah, just to let our listeners know you're not at a disadvantage. If you decide I need to table this for a while and come back to it later, it's actually pretty normal. Absolutely. And you can be very successful making that very clear. You could be very successful at this exam. Yes. It sounds like we're sort of giving tips, right? For these test takers of setting expectations with themselves. This will be a part-time job, setting expectations with family, having some level of self-care to make it through the study process. Do you have any other tips that we haven't mentioned yet for test takers? Yeah. I mean, how much time do you have now? <laughs> um, yeah, so certainly. I, I think a lot of this really is about kind of taking a pause before you dive into the study process to really look at your life. And and what does your life look like? What does it look like personally? What does it look like professionally? And and how can you get support? Because as you start putting together a study plan for yourself, you're going to have to look at what are the expectations, right? So if if you can't study 15 to 20 hours a week, it's probably not going to be realistic for you to try to take this test in two to three months. And, you know, I've had people say, well, well, is it possible? And, you know, I like to be an optimist and say, well, anything's possible. You know, there probably are people out there who study a long weekend and take the test and pass, but those are certainly people we're not talking to. I, no, <laughs> we do not speak to those people. <laughs> <laughs> they, they probably exist, right? You know, it's in the realm of possibility. I'd be curious if we get any comments um, from the podcast, if they're like, Hey, I did that. I want to know their certain- secret. If they do that, do they just have an eidetic memory or what? I don't know. <laughs> Some type of magic skill set, but no, truly. I mean, that, that is possible. Anything's in the realm of possibilities, but I think being very realistic with your expectations and also using kind of historical data to drive your present study plan. So like if you find that you really, really struggle with taking in a lot of material, paying attention to details, test anxiety, things like that, you may need a little bit more time. I mean, you know, you may need to kind of set the expectation that I can't do this in three months, but Here, I want to add a caveat that's perhaps not exactly a tip, but it's something to be very aware of, is that I think for a lot of folks, especially the ones that go take this test right after grad school, where they're still connected to like people from internship, their cohort, or people in postdoc with them, 
the comparison game is so real with this test. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to folks where they're like, you know, I work with all these other postdocs. I'm the last one who hasn't passed. And it's just really eating away at me because, you know, my friend, so-and-so, they studied for three months. They took the test one time. They passed no problem. And I've, you know, taken it one time and I didn't pass. Or I'm I'm taking more like six months to study. So I just want to encourage folks that when you set expectations for yourself, that it's truly about you and that, you know, other people have so many different things going on that could be kind of impacting their ability to create their own study plan and follow through with it. So really just focusing on you and your strengths and your growth areas and also setting boundaries. I, I saw a quote recently and I, I can't for the life of me remember who the exact author was, but it was kind of like something in the sphere of Brene Brown, but I don't think she actually said it. But it was like, you know, boundaries are the distance that I can safely love you and love myself. Mm, And I just love that so much because truly with setting these boundaries, I think there's setting boundaries with this test that, you know, to your point earlier, you're not in a bubble studying for this test. Like your life is still happening around you, whether that be personal or professional I work with a lot of women who are pregnant right now trying to study for this test and take the test and they're in like their eighth month of pregnancy. And it's like, you have to take care of you. You know, if you can't study for five hours at a time, but you used to be able to do that before getting pregnant, that's okay. But but be mindful of where you're at right now and, and kind of being compassionate and giving yourself grace that that's what you can give right now and that that's okay. So kind of the setting boundaries with the test with people in your life too. I mean, I don't think you should totally give up a social life, but you know, do you want to go to every social occasion? I mean, maybe not, maybe that's not part of the plan, but certainly give yourself a day off, take care of yourself. All of that I think is incredibly important, but also committing. So I think the big word I'm thinking of is balance, but that's a really hard thing to obtain. So balance is going to mean something different for everyone. I was thinking balance when you were saying all of that. It reminds me a tip I give some of my customers is commit to this, like a part-time job, but also stop when you're done, like a part-time job, like don't feel guilty that you're not studying all the time or that, you know, like the guilt is so heavy when you're trying to reach this goal and all your extra time could be going towards it. But this is a long run thing. It's not a short term cramming situation. And so I think it helps to literally think of it like you're clocking in and clocking out of work sometimes. And when you're done, you're done. And in some ways you have to put the material down to know what is retained in your long-term memory anyway. So it doesn't really serve you to just constantly, constant, constantly study. So I, I, I think balance is a really good tip and a good framework to keep in mind during that season. Let's get into some of the nitty gritty tips and details you have to actually study for this exam. How do you prepare your students best for this exam? Great question. And and it's going to look different for everybody. So of course there's always the the blanket plans, so to speak, but I do want to encourage folks to really, again, kind of going back to that, don't compare yourself to others, really focus on where are your strengths and where are your growth areas. So those are some of the, the first things we're talking about in, let's say, an initial coaching session. So so ATABs, they offer coaching as we know, right? We're coaches. And so especially for, you know, a coaching session, when I'm talking to someone for the first time, it's like, 
well, how do you thrive and, and what are what are your areas of growth that that could become some hurdles for us down the line? And so I think about nitty gritty. So time of day. If you're not a morning person, please don't be waking up at 4 a.m. to study for this exam. Like, it's just not going to work. Don't do that to yourself. Um, same thing if you're not a night owl, right? Like, please don't study for four or five hours after work. Like, it's just not playing to your strengths. So time of day, I think, is important. Time of week can be important, too. I think for some folks, especially for the folks that are working full time, you know, they're trying to manage a job through this that, hey, you know, what, what days of week make the most sense for you? Because the big question that tends to come up is like, how do I manage studying when I work 40 hours a week? And so I think the big question is, well, how much can you really give after work? Because I think, you know, especially for those of us that let's say work in like a private practice setting, right? We may have like a heavier day, certain days of the week where we might have more back-to-back patients. And so we have to kind of like, you know, be aware that, wow, I'm really tired on let's say Tuesdays, but Wednesdays are my lighter day. I kind of finish up around three. So maybe I could give, you know, two, three hours after work that day and I'm off Friday. So Friday could be a big study day. And certainly when it comes to like the practice exams, right? So if you have someone who's taking a practice exam as a part of their study plan, that's committing a lot of time. You know, the each triple P is four hours and 15 minutes unless you have accommodations. And so if you're going to be taking a practice exam, does it make sense to do that right after work or after a long day? Maybe not. So little things like that, I think in terms of creating your schedule are really important. I think the other thing too is this applies for, for really anybody, but I would say, especially for those who are partnered and have families that really get your support system in place. And so if you have a partner or you have children, thinking about how can you start having some open communication with your family about, hey, this is something I'm committing to. I'm going to need help in these ways. Like Saturday mornings, let's say eight to 11, I'm going to be going to the library to study can you, you know, watch the kids or can you help out? I think especially for the, the women I work with who are single moms, right? Or, or even dads, single parents, that that's going to be even more critical because if you don't have childcare options or you have a lack of resources, that's going to be really hard to take time away to study when you're not working. And sometimes, you know, you may not just have one full-time job. You may have two. On top of now, we're saying, hey, okay, the ECCP is a part-time job. So I want to be mindful of how those things come into play. And certainly they do. And even for those who, who maybe aren't partnered or don't have families, or maybe they're not working right now, you would think in, in a perfect world, like, okay, I have all this time to study. But I, I find that that can work against people sometimes. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, Erin. But even for my folks where they're like, yeah, I took a sabbatical or, you know, I'm not working right now. I can study 12 hours a day. That can work against you because are we really focusing on quality or are you just kind of focusing on quantity? Okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm getting 30, 40 hours a week of studying. And so clearly I'm studying a lot. But let's backtrack a little bit. You know, maybe we're not seeing your scores increase. So this could be a situation of, wow, maybe the quality of the studying isn't quite there. So let's only study five hours. We don't need to study 10. Yes. And that goes into the burnout thing too. Yeah. Because if you study that much, it's probably not quality and you're going to burn out more. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking of certain customers I've spoken to over the years, as you're saying all of that. And I think it's true. I've, I've had some who've gotten really creative with childcare, even if it's just an hour 
here and there that, that adds up over the week. And I've had other customers who've spoken with their supervisors and their bosses and just were really humble and honest and said, Hey, I'm having a hard time finding time to study, but it's to your advantage for me to get licensed. Can you help me like have a lighter caseload for the next three months? Or can I have Fridays off? And, and you'd be surprised how often mm-hmm. that actually works out for people. And similarly, the, the flip side of people who have so much time, I actually had a couple customers who had that, that experience where like, I'm just so discouraged. And it's hard when you put in that much time and you're working that hard and to have no results, it's so defeating. So I have them do an Excel clock in clock out. And, and whenever they took a break or got a snack, they had to clock out. And it turns out they were only studying as half the amount that they thought they were, because it's just so easy to get distracted, you know, and when you have all day and no structure. And so, yeah, I'm hearing that balance again in the setting up of when you study and how you study. And so I think of it like you're an independent contractor and you, you can put those hours in whenever you want, but at the end of the week, they have to total X amount to meet your goal. Right. So I think sometimes setting up for this test is the hardest part. Doing it is not actually that difficult. Um, especially if you have a study prep program, I don't know how people study and pass, or if they even do without some kind of test prep program, I just, I, I, I would have no idea how somebody would do that. So I think, you know, step one, get a program step two, figure out where your hours are going to go. And that's, that's really kind of all you need. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years, working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com and use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. And I'm glad you said that, Erin, because see, I was even coming from the this assumption space of you already had the program, right? So, right. so perhaps, <laughs> perhaps you're you're kind of alluding to another kind of question that's that's an important question is like, you know, really truly, where do you start? And I and I think about how getting a program and and investing in it. And I'm I'm not trying to be an ATAB spokeswoman. I mean, obviously, I just kind of speak to what I know, but I do think about how investing in a program instead of doing a piecemeal, because this has happened a lot recently, actually, for me, and I'm sure for you as well, Erin, is that people will come to me kind of, it's their first coaching session, and they'll say, hey, you know, I took the exam this year, I didn't pass, and we'll talk about, well, how did you prepare for it? And it's like, well, I, you know, I had a lot of hand-me-down materials that were kind of given to me by like, you know, some of the older cohorts or a friend and, you know, it was from different companies and I just kind of like studied the materials and maybe took like one practice exam and then took the test. And what I find is that, yes, in some ways you might be saving some money, right. In terms of, you know, not having to, to pay for additional materials, but I find that even from my own experience that I invested in a program right out the gate. And it's like kind of trusting that the program has everything you need because 
pulling all these supplemental materials out, it really doesn't help. Because I even had someone recently who was saying that they were buying all these textbooks thinking that they needed more information. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like literally you just invested all this money into your program. It has everything you need, truly. Please do not go buy extra textbooks or, you know, go back to your notes from grad school. I mean, I mean, certainly you could go back to, like you said, Erin, that starred, like highlighted something. Oh my goodness. If I'm you, so glad I didn't have to if, do that. <laughs> if you wanted to, if that eases your anxiety, I mean, I guess you could, but really everything you need is with the program. So, so truly that is like the step one is yes. find a program, invest in it. And if there's a coaching or some type of guidance, Sign up for that because, you know, we, especially, you know, through ATABs, we know kind of how to maneuver organizing all these materials. Because a lot of times when you get a program, it's like, hey, here's all this stuff. And, and so many times people feel so overwhelmed because they're like, well, what do I do first? Do I take a workshop or do I read the book or do I take a test? What do I do first? So if there is some type of guidance, you know, with a coach or some type of mentor, use that. And then they'll be able to kind of help guide you because this process can feel so isolating, but it doesn't have to be. I love that. Yeah. And, and to add something to the program choice, I, I love that you're saying pick a program. You know, I want to, I want to focus on that because I, I think of it, like if you went to multiple different therapists for the same goal, like that's fine that none of the therapists are wrong. They're all going to help you, but they all have a slightly different way to get there. So you're going to end up working so much harder and longer to get there. And that's what I see when people mix and match different programs. I have nothing against any of the programs, but they're all a little different. They have a little bit of a different focus, a little bit of a different style because they're, we only have to pass this exam at 70%. So that means there's a hundred percent of information they can focus on. So one program might focus a little bit more on this, another program, a little bit more on that. And that can get confusing. And it can also make you work harder and longer than you need to, to reach that 70% to pass. So to our early listeners, just pick one program, research it, pick one you like, stick with it. A benefit of ATBS is it's, it's the only one I know of that has one-on-one coaching consistently throughout the process. A lot of the other programs are more independent, but yeah, as coaches, we offer structural support, test strategy, support, organization, encouragement, pep talks, whatever it is that you need to get there. So I think, yeah, if you're somebody that wants help with structure or somebody who knows that you struggle with test strategy or time management or something like that, and you just want a little accountability, I think that would be a great fit. What are some other reasons you can think of why people might want extra support, whether that be coaching through a certain program or when to get a tutor or when to get some kind of outside support for this test? In terms of when that might come up, I, I think about, especially for folks that are doing this on their own, you know, maybe your rest of your cohort has already taken the exam or you're trying to take it earlier. I have heard of some folks, depending on what state they go to, where even I have some folks on internship that are, are kind of, they're at the end of internship and, and starting to study because they can take it without postdoc hours. So again, double check your, your state board or your um, province if you're in Canada. But I, I think about if you're really kind of feeling isolated in this and you're not having kind of like a study group per se to really be able to kind of bounce ideas off of. And additionally too, I, I think about like first-generation students, right? If you don't come from a family that that maybe has, 
you know, gone to college or gone to graduate school, they may not be able to support you in those ways. I mean, certainly there'll be a support to you, but they may not be able to truly kind of understand, you know, our version, quote unquote, as you said, Erin, of the bar exam. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Additionally, some other things that might come up is that if you know you struggle with, let's say, test anxiety, which is a, a very common concern that comes up. If you really struggle with test anxiety and you kind of go down that anxiety rabbit hole very easily, that certainly as coaches, most of us are <laughs> psychologists in our day jobs, but that we're here for you as a coach and we can provide that support to kind of help you manage your test anxiety, not necessarily as your therapist, but we do have that lens that we can bring into the relationship to kind of help you get through some of that and create some strategies around that. And, and truly, I think, honestly, if it's fair, I would say this about therapy is like anybody could benefit. You know, you don't have to be at a disadvantage to, to need coaching or to need tutoring or to need any type of additional um, support. I think everybody could really benefit from it, you know, even just to kind of be able to say to somebody else, hey, this is my plan. This is what I'm thinking. What are your thoughts? And maybe someone can bring some new ideas to the table that would only benefit you in the long run. That's good. Yeah. Also, I'm thinking too, if anybody knows that they have a learning difficulty or dyslexia or a language processing disorder or, or something like that, I think that one-on-one coaching can be helpful and sometimes even tutoring too. So, so coaching is more guidance for the test. Tutoring is more, how do I memorize? How do I retain information? So I think that would be a good candidate to, to get a little extra support. And also I would say, if you want accommodations, get on that early. It usually takes unfortunately weeks to months to have all of that approved and processed so that you can have accommodations on your exam day. So about the same time that you buy a study prep program, you may want to look into your state board to see what the process is to get approved for accommodations. And to add to that, Erin, just for those folks who do need accommodations or think they might need accommodations, I would add from just my experience as a coach that Talk with your doctor, you know, that you work with in terms of, do you think that it'd be helpful for you to get these accommodations if you haven't had accommodations in the past? And know that when you go to sign up for the exam, you have to have the accommodations already in place. Because that's a big question that tends to come up is, hey, I have a test date, but I need accommodations. Be aware that you have to have the accommodations approved and in place when you go to sign up for your exam date. Yeah. And usually it's just another paperwork process that takes a while. It's not too difficult, but you do need some kind of doctor evaluation to go with the paperwork that you send to the board. And obviously that can take a little bit too. So if you feel like you need that, look into that earlier than later. Well, Kristen, let's say that I bought a program, worked with a coach, studied 15 hours a week, haven't seen my family in a long time. And like, how do I know (laughs) that I'm ready for this test? How do you guide people to know when they're ready to actually go test? That's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) And then it's going to depend, of course, um, going back to the program, right? So I think that's another reason to highlight what you had talked about earlier, Erin, in terms of getting a program and sticking with one program. That program is going to guide you in terms of your scores of when you're ready. And as coaches, we really rely on those scores. So we have something through ATABs called test master exams, which is basically like a full 
blown 225 practice exam that's equivalent to the difficulty level of the EPPP. And so when we have folks take those exams, we want to be seeing them scoring in the mid-70s consistently before we feel that, hey, not only are you passing, but you've created a nice buffer in your score in case, you know, maybe you're a little extra anxious on test day or you're not feeling well, which, you know, now with, with COVID, you may not be able to test, but um, certainly these types of things can come up and impact your performance. And so having that buffer is really important. But the key is that that's through ATAPS. So depending on what program you have, you really want to look at what are they recommending is kind of the goal in terms of my scores. Like what score should I be reaching before I go into the EPPP? And following through with that, because I think sometimes it's easy to kind of get lost in this sort of ideal timeline of, no, I have to test before, let's say, you know, the holidays. And, and if you're not showing readiness, I mean, certainly you could go try and see what happens, but just be aware that if you're not making, meeting the recommendations based on that program and what they've seen to work for a significant amount of their testing candidates, that there's still a chance that you may not pass. So be very realistic with meeting those expectations. And I think beyond just kind of the objective scores, there's also a sense of confidence. I kind of laugh because I remember this feeling myself, but I hear it all the time with the coaching clients I work with that you get to this point in your studying where you almost want to throw your books out the window, right? <laughs> I wanted like, to burn mine and set them on fire. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's the feeling. So it might be a, a sense of burning or throwing things away, something like throwing it at the wall, whatever the case may be. It's, it's this kind of feeling of like, oh my gosh, I know this. If I have to go back and review this anymore, I'm, I literally just, I, I get it. I, I want to move on. Like I'm getting very tired and not to the depths of like significant burnout where you feel like you just can't move forward, but it is this feeling of mastery that look, I know this stuff. I don't want to review it anymore because I know it. So I, I think about that sense of confidence. It is a feeling and it's a very hard feeling to describe. So it's, it's something that you kind of have to get to to know it's there. But it's it's this sense of confidence, mastery. I know this material. I know I know it. Of course, I'm anxious about this exam, but I need to go take this. I feel ready. I love that. Yeah, it's that sense of I, I can't do this anymore. There's nothing else I could add that would help. However, I will add that that doesn't mean you recognize every question on the exam, right? Because even when you're test ready, even when you're passing, there's still about 30% that's either you didn't have time to get to in the material or it's a pilot question. And it's not like the 70% you're passing by, you automatically know immediately a lot of that you are reasoning through and narrowing down. So it's not this confidence of like, yes, I recognize every single question here. Like it's a simple multiple choice exam, but it is a sense of confidence of I could figure it out. Even if I don't recall, I could still narrow it down. I know enough to do this. I, I love that. Yeah. There's this qualitative way to know you're ready. And then the quantitative with the scores in your program. That's great. Okay. So what happens after somebody takes the exam? What happens best case scenario? If somebody passes, what are the next steps? Unfortunately, worst case scenario, what would somebody do if they didn't quite make it the first time? Well, let's start with if someone passes. So okay. if somebody passes, usually for most folks, that means that you've already kind of told the ASPPB, the company who creates the EPPP, you've already told them where to send your scores. And so your state's kind of already getting that information. And it, it very well could just be 
sending in like a last piece of paperwork and some money and then your license will come. I know for a lot of folks who are currently on postdoc, but they're able to take the ECPPP while they're on postdoc, but their state still requires them to finish postdoc before they could get their license. There may be a period of time where like, hey, yay, you finished, you passed the exam, but you might still have, let's say, 50 hours left of your postdoc. So you'll have to finish those hours, submit those hours with your supervisor to your state, and then you know pay the fee and you'll get the license. So it's very state dependent, but for the most part, it may just be like finishing a small handful of hours and then you're good to go. Or if you had everything else done and you were just waiting on the exam, you you know check with your state, see what else you need to turn in and go from there. I will say, depending on your state, sometimes, especially with COVID, I mean, that's a whole another stressor that you know we didn't really cover as much, but it's definitely kind of lingering over this whole process is that things are taking longer, even longer than usual. So pre-pandemic things, depending on your state, can take long to process. But I would say from my experience in my own state and working with other folks in different states, that this process is just even taking longer now with, with the pandemic. So double check, check in often if you have like a representative, I think in the state of California that you have like a representative that you speak with regarding your licensure exam. And in my state, we don't necessarily have that, but there's kind of a contact number or information that you can kind of check in. Um, So if they say, hey, it'll be three months, you'll get your license. If you haven't heard anything in those three months, I do want to encourage folks to be checking in because sometimes, you know, with all these licensure candidates, things can kind of fall through the cracks. So definitely check in because you may be licensed and not realize it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that's a great day when you get your license number. I remember I was in an ice cream shop when that email came through for me. I'll never forget it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm officially a licensed psychologist. But I, and I think I want to add in there, it goes without saying, but take some time to celebrate. Like that's a huge weight off your back. It's a huge accomplishment. And it's very true that you don't ever have to retake it again. I mean, unless something happens with your license and, you know, but the most people don't ever have to retake it. So it really is over. And it's just such a a wonderful time to celebrate too and take some deep breaths. So, okay. Well, now what if worst case somebody doesn't pass? I'm sure everybody's nervous about that. So what's, what are the steps if unfortunately you don't pass the first time? That is a really, really hard experience for a lot of folks. I mean, I think you know, rationally, we all understand it's just a test, right? And and eventually we'll we'll get through it. But I think in that moment, there's just so much emotion and also fatigue, right? You you just went through this whole test. You gave it your all. And, you know, I've seen it time and time again, there are folks that score really close. They might just be like four or five questions away from passing. So, so that's hard. And, and I want to encourage folks to, you know, sit with that emotion. I mean, you know, don't try to bottle it up, experience it, sit with it, acknowledge it. It's hard. It's tough. You gave your all, but then do a reframe that, Hey, you put in a lot of effort and you didn't quite pass this time, but you got closer. And now you have this unique experience where you have exposure to the test. You've seen the test. You know what it's like to sign into the testing center. You know what it's like to sit there for the allotted time. And you know what the questions look like from having that exposure to the real EPPP. So use that as an edge. Use that as a strength going into restudying for the exam and taking it again in the future. So that really does give you an advantage in some ways. So really kind of allowing yourself to feel all the feelings, but then 
you know, when you're ready to kind of transition to that kind of reframe of, okay, like I have this experience under my belt and I can use that to my advantage moving forward. And so some of the logistics that go with that, the first thing that would be helpful to would be to kind of check in with your state. I know we kind of sound redundant when we say <laughs> that, but it's so true, right? Because every state has their own kind of rules and regulations, but some states they say, hey, you know what? You have four chances to take the EPPP in a year because there's four versions of the exam. Take it as many times as you want while your application is active. Some states are very, very stringent. Some will say, you know, if this is your first time taking it and you don't pass, you have to wait a period of time or you have to reapply or, you know, send an additional piece of paperwork or something like that to get permission to take it again. So it very much can vary state to state. So I would say even before going into your exam the first time, it is helpful to have a sense of, okay, worst case scenario, I don't pass. What does that mean in terms of how I can get approval to retest? And sometimes you don't even have to call the state board. You, you could just retake it again. I would say your second call would be helpful to call your, your prep program, right? You know, so let's say your program expired or it's about to expire, it would be helpful to check in with your test prep program to kind of see, you know, what would be helpful for me moving forward? How much time do I need? Again, you don't have to go through this by yourself. So certainly if you have a coach or you have somebody through the program you could check in with, they can work with you on creating a plan and really focus on kind of what went right, what didn't go right on the exam and really come up with a customized plan to get you over that hump the next time. So don't lose hope. That's like my biggest message. Do not lose hope. Please know that you'll get through this, but there's a couple steps along the way to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And usually, I don't know if you see this too, but usually it's not that much longer until somebody can retest and pass. So if, if I get that call, the first thing I'm trying to figure out is, was it test taking anxiety? Is it test error? Is it nerves? Cause those things are a quicker fix. If it's content, you may need to retest a little bit later and take some more time to learn the content, but either way, all the studying that they have done completely counts. It's not like you start from square one, the second round, right? You just build from where you were. So usually it's not that much longer, just looking at weeks, maybe a couple months max. So you test again. And it seems like forever at that moment, but in the big scheme of life, you probably won't even think about it again. Cause once you're done with this test, you never think about it again. You don't want to think about it again. And you just move on with your life. Right. So unless you big... become a coach, <laughs> true. We think about it all the time. <laughs> But yeah, for most people, once you're done, you're done. And so it can be devastating to have that first fail. But in the big scheme of things, a year later, two years later, three years later, it's not even going to be a blip on their life, you know, because usually people retest pretty soon. So I would give that encouragement of just hang in there. I would also encourage too, I know you had mentioned when someone passes, how important it is to celebrate. I would say for even for someone who doesn't pass to That's celebrate, good. because at the end of the day, you still had to take the test, right? You still had to sit down and give your all on 225 questions, regardless of what happened, right? Regardless if you, you know, got really sick in the middle of the test, or maybe you had really bad anxiety or your mind just blanked, right? I mean, regardless of all those things, you still had to put in the effort. And I think it's really important to celebrate that effort and to, you know, kind of acknowledge that, hey, I did this hard thing and I'll have to do it again. But I am proud of myself, right? It's kind of that self-love, self-compassion, which I'm a big believer in. That's good. That's really good. 
Well, Kristen, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and experiences. I feel like this was really helpful and and fun. I really enjoyed just sharing our tidbits with each other. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it too. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to connect with you, Erin. Same, same. Well, I want to remind our listeners too, that on this episode, it's resources and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. You can visit triadhq.com slash BHT today and explore our archive. And finally, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining in on this conversation. We really appreciate you being here with us, and we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.